take your Bibles. I know we've been going through 1 Timothy, but the new year we kind of went off for, you know, a couple topical messages and so forth on Sundays and a couple on uh, Wednesday nights as well. And then we'll get both back into the books we've been in. Uh, and this, uh, we're in 1 Timothy, but we're not going to go there. We're going to go to Romans 8, which is arguably the most, one of the most encouraging, if not the most encouraging, it's one of the most encouraging passages in the entire Bible. And we don't have time to go through all of Romans 8, uh, but I want to go through the main verses in Romans 8 that I think are just so encouraging. How many feel like you can use some encouragement sometimes? Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And what a passage this is. I, I love this passage. In fact, uh, when I was told that uh, I was supposed to die of COVID and I was in the hospital and no one could visit me and I was one of those guys in that situation, I was there for about a week and they're telling me I wouldn't get out, you know, and all that. Um, this is a passage, verses 28 to verses 39. It's one of the passages I memorized. It's just me and God's word, you know, and, uh, and the Lord, his spirit. And he really ministered to me. He gave me encouraging dreams at that time. Uh, you know, I thought it's interesting because I was having dreams like never before of worship and singing and others singing and praising God. I was like, it made, made me think of Colossians and Ephesians where it says, sing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's something we need to do to encourage one another, right? When somebody's dying, you can sing a hymn or a couple you can, you know. But there was no one there to encourage you. It's kind of tough. And I thought, in Zephaniah 3, the Lord says he sings over his people. And I was like, it hit me. I was like, well, that's the third time I heard a worship song in a dream, you know. And it was so, all of them were all beautiful. And two were songs I never heard before. And one is, great is thy faithfulness, which I never sing. And it was a scripture that I happened to be meditating on, too, in Lamentations 3 about great is thy faithfulness. And I was like, and, and there's a whole story to that, but it was just so beautiful. I was so encouraged. But this passage is so encouraging no matter what you're going through in life. And Romans 8, uh, he's, you know, there's so much to the book of Romans, you know. He's encouraging, to understand a little bit of the background, he's encouraging the believers there to trust in the Lord and that we're saved by grace through faith, Amen. That we're not saved through the works of the law. And the Roman church was, was a, a mixed multitude of Jewish and Gentile believers. And there was some confusion among many of the Jewish believers. And of course, the Gentile believers were not really in the know of the deeper things of God. And there was a shift going on where God was turning the Gentiles for salvation. So many of the Jews who understood, as Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. They're like, what's happened? Did God forget about the Jews and he's left Israel behind and not many years hence from this period when this letter is written, the Jewish temple, which was the center of their entire communal life, spiritual life, everything would be destroyed in 70 AD under Titus. And Paul was letting them know that God's not done with the Jews. He still has a plan for the Jews. In fact, many erroneously teach, it's, an, it's a theological aberration, that God is done with Israel. He's no more, has no more plan for the Jews, and uh, we get all the promises to Israel. We love, they take all the promises, but all the negative curses and stuff, they kind of ignore those, but they say, we get all these promises, they're all for us now. It's called replacement theology, and replacement theology is the idea that we've replaced Israel and God's done with the Jewish nation, and Paul makes it very clear that even though God has turned now to the Gentiles, he's not done with the Jewish nation. In fact, in Romans 8, he warns the Gentile believers not to be ignorant of the fact that God's not done with Israel and that in the future all Israel shall be saved and the deliverer shall come from Zion and deliver uh, Jacob, amen, from ungodliness. And we read about that in Zechariah chapter 12, right? 
And Jesus said, you won't see me again to the Jews until you say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen? And the Jews will be humbled during the tribulation period, which is also called Jacob's trouble. They'll find out that they can't rely on the nations because all the nations will have surrounded them. It'll be, look like it's too late, but they'll cry out to God finally. They'll cry out to their Messiah. And they'll, they'll, they'll utter those, those messianic, that messianic hope from the Old Testament. Blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they'll finally utter that and not rely on military power. And then they'll see Romans chapter 12. I'm sorry, Zechariah 12. Him whom they what? Him who they pierced. Amen. That's in the Old Testament, Zechariah 12. And then they'll be cleansed. The fountain of cleansing will be open to them. So God's purpose in Romans is not only to show the beautiful salvation promises that they extend not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles, but also to let them know that God's not done with the Jewish nation. And he wants to use the salvation of the Gentiles, he says in Romans 11, to provoke the Jews to jealousy, that they see the, the joy of the Lord and the relationship that Christians have and be blown away that's, because it's become such a religion for many of them, right? And then they'll see that. And they're like, why do they have? And that's happened to so many Jewish people through the years. Like, wait a minute, you're using my Bible. You're using my Old Testament and you're talking to God and you know him. And, and, uh, but there's a heavy thing going on in Romans. He wants to let them know that God had always planned not just to save Jews, but also to save Gentiles, amen? Because the Jews were like, hey, it's about us, many of them, right? You know, the Gentiles were basically, for many Jews, just fuel for the fires of hell. And Paul is saying no, because when we read through, I'm almost at, I'm near, nearing the end of uh, the book of Genesis because I'm going through the Bible in a, you know, a year. And I, I study scripture, so I don't just read straight through all the time. But I thought I'm going to go straight through again and uh, love that, but just continue to, I love to just study. But it's cool when you're just going straight through and you see God's promises to Abraham, the first Jew, if you will. In chapter 12, the first few verses, they chose him so he could be what? His seed would be as numerous as you put the other promise together as the, as the stars in the sky, the sands, the seashore. But his seed, we find out, would be more than just his physical seed because everyone we read in Galatians chapter 3 that we are all children of Abraham through faith. All those who trust in the Lord are children of Abraham. That doesn't mean we're all Jews, but that all means that we're spiritual children of Abraham. Amen? We're children of God. And he said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Here we are in the United States of America, the other side of the planet from Israel, and there's tens of millions of people claiming to be Christians here in our nation. And it's just a beautiful thing that the gospel is spread. So one of the things that comes up in Paul's plan is to let them know that God has a plan from the beginning where he predestines people to salvation. And predestination is actually a beautiful word. A lot of people, when they hear that word, they just like shudder. Because, you know, people have been taught a skewed view of predestination. Instead of being a beautiful doctrine, right, uh, that includes uh, provisionally, uh, will incorporate anybody who will come to Christ, amen? The way of salvation is open to all. It's become a divisive doctrine to where there's only a select few that God really wants to save, and he's predestined them to salvation, predestined everybody else to damnation, and doc doctrine is called double predestination, which is not taught in the Bible. You never see people but being predestined unilaterally, unconditionally to damnation by God in the Bible. So the predestination, even in Ephesians, where it comes up as well, it's a beautiful doctrine. What it means is that, and this is encouragement, that God has always had a plan for our salvation. It's a beautiful thing, amen? 
So we understand predestination biblically. We understand it rightly. We understand that God is the one who predestines us. He, he's the one that chooses us. But uh, anybody could be among the chosen. Jesus says, I say these things to you that you may be saved, but you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. That's in John chapter 5, verses 34 through 40. And that, that's the heart of God. That's a beautiful heart, amen? amen? But those who reject him, and those who knows, he knows who's going to reject him and who's going to accept him. And those who accept the gospel, they become part of Christ, who is, we, they become part of his body. And Jesus is the chosen one, amen? Over and over, he's called the, the chosen one of Israel. He's, he's the elect one. So anyone who comes to Christ and enters into Christ, we become part of his body, and we become part of the elect, Amen? Whoever comes to him, and, and it's what we call in theology, and the Jews understood this in the, in the, during the first century. Many of the Jews, they understood what we call corporate election, that we're elect in connection with a person, and whoever's in that person, and associated with that person through faith, is part of the elect. So whoever comes to Christ becomes part of the elect. Whoever rejects Christ, rejects the election that could be there. It's like Jonah says, in Jonah 2.8, I'm sorry, it says, uh, the, 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 it speaks of the pagans, it's, or it speaks of those who cling to worthless idols, and they reject the grace that could be theirs. And praise God, our, our scripture, Blessed Hope Chapel, part of the verses in, in uh, Titus 2, if you go from 11 through 14, is the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to who? Who's that? To all men, every one of us. So when I look at Romans 8, and I look at predestination, which comes up in this passage, it's actually a very, very beautiful thing. And my point is, is that the term predestination is a beautiful term, and it's meant to be inclusive of whosoever will. Everybody can be among the predestined. Of course, many reject Christ. So don't look at election and predestination as these monstrous words where God's a tyrant, and he just gets off on just damning people and watching them writhe in hell and he created them because he wants to see them burn and so forth. That's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of the God of the Bible. So Romans 8 is such a beautiful passage and picking up at verse 28. Romans 8 verse 28. And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Have you ever heard that verse before? That's almost a kind of a rhetorical question. We've all heard that. In fact, that verse, where would you put that when you hear verses that you think are most, the most popular verses, you know? Where would you, yeah, you'd put it on the refrigerator, that's right. <laughs> but where would you rank that in, say, the top 10 verses that are people's favorite verses between 1 and 10? Where? Two? I think, I think two. We all know probably number one, right? See, still CF. I haven't seen it at football games like I used to, but recently I saw it at a football game hanging when they're kicking the field goal. And I think they, the coach on their side, you know, froze the guy or, they, you know, they call a timeout to ice the guy that's going to kick the field goal so he'll get nervous and stuff. I'm like, praise God, man. John 3.16 is just hanging there still, you know? And uh, maybe the coach is a Christian. Oh, they probably got the cameras on John 3.16. Ice that kicker. Probably not. But it was cool seeing John 3.16. But I always think, you know what? I love that. I mean, that's, to me, that's... If, you're gonna, if, if I could only share one verse with somebody, it would be John 3.16. But my second go-to for me, too, is probably right here, Romans 8.28. For God works, loves, God works all things together for the good for those who love him. Amen? Or the call according to his purpose. 
And that, that's so amazing because it says so much. It, it, it talks about not only that he's working everything for the good, for those who love him, but that are called according to his purpose, that there's an end goal and God's sovereign, amen. He's all powerful and he's good, amen. He wants to bless us, but that everything in our life, even the ugly things, even the painful things, even the trials we go through that, that just hurt at times so badly, we have the assurance that he's gonna work that for the good in our lives. Isn't that awesome? I mean, no wonder. I mean, that's such a, a uh, heartwarming verse, and so many people love Romans 8, 28. And that's a verse I really would encourage you, if you haven't already, consider, consider memorizing. It's very simple to memorize that verse. For we know that God works all things. You say that over and over again, or a little part of the first verse. Then you add together for the good, for those who love him, right? And then you add and maybe say that eight or 10 times or 15 or how many times it takes to get that first phrase, second phrase, and that are called according to his purpose. You add that, and before you know it, you have a verse memorized. And then you can memorize Romans 8, 28. They didn't have to memorize the verse numbers back in the day because they didn't have Bible verses. You know, they read somewhere in Isaiah, it says, you know, I'm glad we got verse numbers. But it's such an, an incredible verse, and a lot of people misunderstand it. You know, a lot of people that are caught up in the health and wealth gospel, you know, name it and claim it crowd that believe that God wants everybody rich and healthy and wealthy and, and you know, live your best life now and, and everything's going to just turn to gold that you touch in this life. And it doesn't really happen that way. That's not what that verse is talking about. It doesn't say you're going to have a perfect life right now. In fact, I'm glad it doesn't say that because we would all be very discouraged. We'd be like, wait a minute. Man, I've had a lot of bumps and bruises, right? There's some spiritual warfare I've gone through that's been tragic. There's loved ones that I just love so much that don't know Jesus or, or there's uh, people I'm praying for that have yet to receive answers for certain things I'm praying for them about or your own personal life. Uh, it, would be, it would be, rather than being encouraged, it actually would be discouraging because you would notice right away that not everything is good in this world and not everything is good about our own lives. We all, uh, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, Amen. But be of good cheer, he said. I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. That's a beautiful promise. So we're going to have tribulation, but we can consider it, as James said, all joy when we encounter various trials, amen? Because James goes on to say God's at work in us to perfect us and mature us, amen? And what, what's his end goal? Well, chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, the first three verses, that when we encounter various trials, we're supposed to rejoice because we can count them a blessing because he's strengthening us. He's building, according to Romans 5, 3, 3 through 5, he's building godly character, you know, and, uh, and hope and so forth. But in uh, James chapter 1, verse 12, blesses a man who endures temptation. The Greek word is parasmas, which also means trial. And it's important to understand that that word temptation, parasmas in the Greek, is also translated trial at times. And, there's, and, it, and it means both. And every time you see it, it means both for the most part. Because every trial also has a what with it? A temptation to take the wrong way out. Amen. Every temptation you face is also a trial. And God wants you to be victorious. But he says, blessed is the man who en endures trial or temptation, prosmos. Because after he has been approved, after he's been tried, he will receive the crown of life. Amen. So when you're going through trials, the end goal is, praise God, we receive the crown of life in the end. And the crown there is a metaphor for eternal life. And the 
important thing to understand here is while everything is not going to be perfect that we go through here, that God is using everything to bring us to an ultimately a perfect state. Every hardship, every trial, every temptation, every uh, aspect of suffering that we go, go through is ultimately God at work in us for the good to bring us into his perfect state and to bring us to a place that he's called us according to his divine and eternal purposes before the beginning of creation even. And what a joy that is. That's, that's just amazing. And that's why I love Romans 8. I like 18. It's right up there. It's not that far behind 28. Sometimes I like 18 more than 28 because I'm just focused on it. But if you back up to verse 18, it's really awesome too. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be what? Compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen? So I love that because that means no matter what amount of suffering you go through, physically, spiritually, uh, persecution, attack, hardship, you can always remind yourself, say, praise God. This is nothing compared to what I'm going to have in heaven in Jesus. Amen? Doesn't even compare. In fact, Paul takes it further in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 at the end of the chapter there. And he says not to focus on that which is temporal, but on that which is eternal. Not to focus on that which is material, right? But that which is spiritual. And he says that the present sufferings we go through there are actually working in us or are at work an incompre uh, incomprehensible weight of glory. This light affliction, he says, the light afflictions that you're going through. It's like, light, Paul, this feels so heavy right now. And Paul, if anyone knew about heavy afflictions, it was Paul, right? But he says these light afflictions are working in us this, this eternal weight of glory. So God's using the things we go through and in his you know, spiritual calculus or whatever you want to call it, he's like multiplying and just through the sufferings that you're going through, building you a place in heaven. So that means we can look at those things and say, wow, Lord, doesn't matter what I go through, everything gets filtered through you. Remember, Satan had to get permission from God to, to test Job. Remember that? Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, Satan has sought permission to sift you like wheat. Remember that? I find those verses comforting. Peter was probably like, I find that comforting when he first said that to me. Well, Jesus also said, you know, uh, I pray that your faith won't fail and that when you're, when you're converted or restored, King James has converted, or when you're restored, strengthen your brethren. God was even to use it not just, so it's not just for our heavenly life. He was going to use these trials in our life right now to one degree or another. That's pretty cool to know too. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, comfort others with the comfort that you've received. Amen. Anybody here been through trials? Every one of us, right? And God comforts us. He's called the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians and he uses brothers and sisters to comfort us. And then once you've got through your trial, you have some scars. So you can go to a brother or sister who has new wounds and show them your scars and say, hey, God got me through this. And God wants to use each and every one of us. We all have a ministry here. We've talked about that many, many times. That we're all ministers, Paul says. We're all ambassadors for Christ. We're all ministers of reconciliation. If anyone be in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new, right? He said, and God has given us, that's all those who are new in Christ, the ministry of reconciliation. And that means we witness the lost to bring to Christ, amen? But we also encourage people when they're struggling their walk with God to trust him. We encourage brothers and sisters who may be quarreling 
to love one another and, and to work things out and be at peace with each other in Christ and love one another as Christ has loved them and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven, forgiven them. So we're able to use these trials that are laid against us that Satan means for evil. We're able to take those things and have victory through Christ and then be a comfort to other people. So when you're encouraging your brothers and sisters, you always ought to look and say, if you see someone who's discouraged, main thing is pray, but at the same time, if, if you can, just say, hey, can I help you? Can I be there for you? Can I pray for you? You know, is there some kind of help, way I can help you? You know, and we need to be there for each other, amen? And that's one thing we want to be focused on throughout a Christian walk is being servants, amen? We weren't blessed, just like Abraham wasn't blessed to just be blessed. He was blessed to be a blessing to others, amen? And God blesses you so you can be a blessing to others. And if we're getting, receive his blessing, but we're not going to shine the light he gave and share the salt that he's given us, you know, back to the Dead Sea. You know, it's dead because fresh water goes out, but doesn't stay fresh. It, it doesn't, it, go, it comes in, but it doesn't go out. See, Galilee's beautiful, man, because the water goes in and the water goes out. Amen. Freely receive, Jesus said, therefore freely what? Freely give. And if we're in, in we have the mindset like, you know what, Lord, I want to encourage others. So you're going to be counseling. The counseling, wait, I don't count. You know what the Bible says in Romans chapter 16 to the entire church at, of the Romans? He says, you are competent to counsel one another. That doesn't mean you're a new Christian and you're going to be able to take somebody through Romans 9 or something, you know? But it does mean that we can all, if we love Jesus, we have words of encouragement that we can share with each other, amen? You know, and one thing Satan wants to do, he wants to make you think that, that you can't get help from other Christians or you can't help other Christians. He wants to cut you off from, he doesn't want us ministering and encouraging one another, praying for one another. The Bible says pray for one another that you may be healed, amen? And the Bible says, you know, to be alert with perseverance, you know, and praying and making supplication for all the saints. So we're supposed to be praying for each other, amen? It's very, very, very important. Now, it's interesting because Paul is saying here in Romans 8.18, I know we start in verse 28, but I just want to back up to that verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So I want you to understand the context of Romans 8.28. For we know that God works all things together for the good for those who love and are the call according to his purpose. He's working everything to that very end, that end goal. We're worth the Lord in glory, amen? That's an exciting reality. And I love that, man. Because at the end there in chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, remember, I mean, it's at, in chapter 37, it's a lot of chapters, okay? Like 14 chapters or so, you're looking at mostly the life of Joseph. And he's a powerful picture of Christ. But Joseph was a favored, blessed son because God chose him to be at the right hand of Pharaoh, to feed, to feed the world, Amen. But you know how his remember how his brothers treated him? They were jealous of him because he received this coat of many colors. He had this dream and he shared it with them that, hey, I, these 12 stars were just the sun and the moon. They're all bowing down to me. And they're like, is he saying that's us? You know, he's a little brother, right? I mean, Benjamin would be born at a certain point. But at that point, they're like, who does he think he is, right? And he got this coat of many colors and they're upset. And what happens? They, they're going to kill him. And they put him in a pit. And they talk about killing him. And Judah says, you know what, let's do this. Let's sell him to the Gentiles, man. Sell him to the pagans and make some money off of him. 
you know. We'll take his cloak and dip it in blood and tell dad, you know, he was killed by a wild animal or something. And then sure enough, they sell him to the pagans and Joseph is mistreated. He's accused of, of attempting adultery with Potiphar's wife, put in prison for some years, you know. He is, he just had a horrible, some horrible things going on. But God supernaturally did miracles through him. It got the Pharaoh's attention and he's, given a dream to where there's going to be seven years of famine. So he's also given a dream that there's going to be seven years of plenty. So he says, hey, you need to store up for seven years. And then when the famine comes, you're going to have all this, this food here. And they had so much abundance. The whole world could come to them. The known world came from all the different nations for bread. And Joseph was received a, a place of exaltation, which is really interesting. If you haven't seen a video called Patterns of Evidence, by a man by the name of Mahoney. You can just type in Mahoney, Patterns of Evidence. Man, you really should check out that, that video series there. We've interviewed him for It's awesome. He's a filmmaker, but he interviews uh, some you know, archaeologists and stuff, and it's just amazing because they found that there in Israel, because some, some people say, well, you know, this probably didn't even happen, you know, and they're looking in the wrong time period, but you back it up even further in time, you find that it was a Semitic Jewish or Hebrew encampment and kept uh, utensils, everything, uh, DNA, and everything proves that there were Jews that were there right in Egypt, a big encampment of them. And there were 12 uh, tombs, 12 brothers. Remember, Joseph and his brothers stayed there because they came and after the famine, and at the end, near the end of the famine, and as it was going on, it was really bad, and, and then Joseph and his people stayed there. But there's one tomb that is special there, there's these huge pyramids, only for pharaohs, but there's this little tiny pyramid amongst these tombs. One of them is this little pyramid. And there's a statue that's been broken down and destroyed, which I don't have time to get all in and do it, but that's understood by many. This was Joseph's tomb, you know, because this was all Semitic, and they honored him, you know. It's, it's worth wa looking, watching. It's pretty heavy when you start seeing the graphics and everything. You're like, wow, they have the remnants of the statue and everything, and, and uh I don't have time to get into the details, but it's pretty compelling uh, evidence. But what's interesting is Joseph said to his brothers at the end, they saw him, right, who they pierced. They rejected him even as Jesus was rejected. Jesus came later than all these Pharisees and everything. He was a younger one compared to their old school thought, and he was doing the miracles, amen? And they threw him in a pit, and not Judah, Judas, which is basically the, the, the Greek of Judah in the Old Testament, sells him to the Gentiles for 30 pieces of silver. Not an accident. He rises to the right hand of God. Amen? Now he gives bread to the world. We take communion, and hundreds of millions of people take communion through the years. The bread of life. It's spiritual. And he's at the right hand of the Father. And one day his brothers will see him whom they pierce, right? And they'll be weeping, it says. It's all a picture it's just mind-blowing, right? But the cool thing about this, you guys, one of the cool things at the end, Joseph says, what you guys meant for evil, God what? He meant for good, amen? Because if you looked at Joseph's life, you would never think, how could this work for good, right? If you looked at Jesus mangled on the cross, right? Bleeding, knowing who he was, you're like, how could this be for the good? But it's turned to our salvation, Amen? Because what Satan meant for evil against Jesus, our Lord, 
God's plan was to use it for the good. That's because Satan is playing chess. I'm sorry, Satan is playing checkers. God's playing chess, amen? And sometimes Satan thinks he like doubles and triple jumps us with his checkers. But God has already had him in checkmate the whole time, you know? And he just uses the enemy, you know, uh, to reveal hearts. Who's going to follow the Lord? Who's going to follow the enemy? So it's interesting. Ecclesiastes 3.11, this is one of my favorite verses too. And it says, God makes all things beautiful in his time. God makes all things beautiful in his time. You ever seen one of those rugs that on the back side of it, if you turn it over, it's got all these like stitching sticking out and all this, these, you know, strings coming out. You're like, wow, it's just terrible. And you turn it over and it's all beautiful, ornately, you know, woven together. And that's what this is like, our lives. We're the bad side of the rug on this planet, amen? But when the Lord's done with us, we're part of this incredible, beautiful tapestry. It's like, you know the stones that in Mark 13, I think it is, yeah, it's Mark 13, that uh, account of the Olivet Discourse and the disciples, and it names them in there, not Matthew 24, Luke 21, don't name them, same discourse, but Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and the four of them are there, and they're just looking at Jesus, look at how beautiful the temple is, and Jesus says, not one stone standing there will be standing on the other. They're talking about the beauty of the temple. It was beautiful. But you know, they took those stones, and they didn't chisel those stones. Some of them were incredibly massive. You could see uh, those stones had been thrown down, and now they just kind of piled some of them up. And when you go to the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall today, they call it the Western Wall, really, not the Wailing Wall. When I was young, they used to call it the Wailing Wall because the Jews are wailing there. But uh, those stones were done in the rock quarries below and then brought up to Mount Zion. Well, guess what? We are called living stones. We are being hammered. And we are being chiseled down here, amen? Before we're brought to the heavenly Mount Zion, amen? So it's like, oh, how come, man? I just feel like I'm getting hammered sometimes. Oh, oh man, that hurts. feel like a chisel in my back. Well, guess what? You are getting hammered. You are getting chiseled. God is making us living stones, amen? You have to keep that in mind. This is not the end. I love theodicy, and theodicy is, you know, the, the so-called problem of evil, I believe the problem of evil, well, some, of the, some atheists would say that's the Achilles heel of, 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 of Christianity, of, of theism, the idea of a God, that there would be evil. And to me, it's not the Achilles heel at all. To me, it's one of the greatest evidences. Because given on atheism, there is no evil. Everything just is, right? There's no injustices. If we just evolve from rocks and gases, one gas doesn't say to the other, you really hurt my feelings and you, that we did was wrong there. That's like, what? It's like, no, you just evolve. You don't, there's no meaning. There's no, there's no transcendent moral value, right? There's nothing transcendent. Uh, there's no lawgiver. There's no right and wrong. There would be no evil. You couldn't condemn Hitler and the Holocaust because guess what? We're just a bunch of evolved gases. The very idea that there's evil means there's a standard of what's right and wrong, amen? It's a powerful evidence. But I love uh, theodicy because it's like, well, why did God allow this world? And it's not, doesn't take, you know, a lot of Bible study to realize because God says, the most, second most popular verse of all time, he works all things together for the good for those who love him to the call according to his purpose. Because this is not the end, but this was the best world for him to create to bring us to the ultimate best world. Do you understand? And that's something good to know when you're looking, when you're talking about theodicy and, and uh 
and God's plan is this is part of the equation. He gave us free moral agency, knowing that people would choose evil, but the best world would be him sending his son, giving his son to the world, showing his goodness, showing his, his love, showing that he is a holy God, a righteous God as well, and redeeming whoever would come to him and that we would be the bride of Christ. Adam and Eve, paradise, that's beautiful, but guess what? That's not God's best. Why? Because guess what? They weren't the bride of Christ. God had a plan to redeem people from every nation, kindred people, and tongue by the precious blood of Christ, who was called the second Adam. And even as Eve was a picture of the church, and Adam, the first Adam, was a picture of Jesus, who's the second Adam, and he was laid down and put into a deep sleep, and his side was opened up, and Eve was brought forth. So Jesus on the cross, he went to a different tree, not the tree of knowledge, but the tree of the cross, right? His side was opened up. He went into the sleep of death, and he gets his bride, the church, and God has put that whole picture there for us to see that he has this eternal plan. And the curse that came up, we know Jesus bore that curse on his head, amen? The thorns and the thistles to bring us to the point of glory. So it's important for you and I to know when you guys, when you encounter something really intense, a very hard trial, don't say, God, why is this happening to me? Say, Lord, you said these things would happen to me. But you also said that you'd work it for the good in my life, amen? And you said that you love me. And you said it works in eternal weight of glory. It can't be compared to what I'm going through. And that'll help you immensely get through your trial, amen? Because you'll have hope. And it's just a, 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 beautiful, a beautiful reality. Let's look at verse 29. For those whom, we looked at verse 28, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You know, if I was going through Romans, we'd probably be spending a whole night on each of these verses or close to it, sometimes maybe more than one uh, day on one verse, as you know me. But I want to get through verses, all the way through verse 39, Lord help me. But it's important, that, and so I'm going to have to speed up a little bit because I had no idea it was going to take that long on verse 28. Uh, but he, uh, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You guys, remember he works all things together for the good for those who love him, for the call the corner of his purpose. See the first word for? That's a conjunction in English. It connects verse 29 to verse 28. And gar, that word in Greek, also is a conjunction. It's connecting the two. For, meaning this is how he works all things together for the good, or what it looks like in the end that we would all be conformed to the image of his son. That blows me away. Because the Bible tells us, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. The Bible says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's person. Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. He's the, the Greek word for image in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, where he's the image of the invisible God, is icon. And that word that they see when they see the word icon, uh, Man, I'm in trouble. I keep going off my notes, going into these other things, uh, and I'm not going to get through these. I only had like five pages of notes. I never have just five pages of notes. But I'm like, even though I only have five pages of notes, <laughs> I'm going off. But let me just say this. Icon would be the image, the Greek word for the image that of, say, for instance, Caesar on a coin. That was picture of Caesar. Image of Caesar was the icon. Well, the word of God is saying Jesus is the perfect icon of the Father. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Well, this is the trip. Because we're being transformed to becoming 
and made in the image of day by day through our trials. God's using those trials, the sandpaper, the hammer, the chisel, whatever it takes because he loves us so much and he wants us to enjoy the beauty of what it means to be made in his image. We are becoming more and more like Christ. We've been created. Uh, when we fell, when humanity fell, the image, the visage the, that we were created in, we were radically distorted, amen, as human beings. I mean, look at humans. They don't look like they're walking very godly and reflecting the Lord, amen. But the gospel, it doesn't just save us, you guys. A lot of people just, you know, go to churches and they just focus, oh, praise God, we're saved. We're saved by the blood. Praise God. And praise God, amen. We sing about it all the time, amen. But God has an end goal, amen. There's a lot more to it. He saved us to seat us in heavenly places. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Jesus says, as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne, those of you who overcome, he said, will sit with me on my throne. Amen? And we'll judge the nations. We'll reign with Christ. It's a beautiful, there's a lot going on there, guys. But we're also being recreated in the image of God. In Ephesians, he says, put off the old man and put on the new man. He says, whereby you're being recreated in the image of Christ according to holiness and according to truth. Amen? We once were unholy, but we're becoming more holy. Sanctification is a process of becoming more like Jesus. Amen? So we're becoming more holy, and we're becoming more and more about the truth and, and so forth, and more and more like Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Wow, we're going to be like God? Like God, but as human beings. You won't become God. That's a lie. Because keep in mind, I, and I hate to even have to express this, but I do because there's so much confusion because there's people going around saying, we're going to become God. That was the original lie. We're not going to become God. So you have to understand in theology, there's a communicable, communi I was kind of mellow early on, I know. Because I thought, oh, I got five pages, you know. Let's take it easy, nice mellow message. And we encourage, I'm like, woo, I'm behind the eight ball right here now, time-wise, man. I want to get done by 830. It's one of my New Year's resolutions, get done on time. So John, Donald, give me a good flag, you know. <laughs> it's always my New Year's resolution, but let's, Lord, help me keep it up all year. Uh, uh, so it's interesting because when you think about it, and it's really heavy, but there are what we call in theology God's communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. His incommunicable attributes are things that we could never have because they only pertain to God and only God can have them. In fact, you know, immortality, being from everlasting without a beginning. No created being could ever have that. that that's impossible. Or, you know, Omnipresence, being everywhere at once, you know? Understanding everybody's thoughts all at once. Such knowledge and such wisdom is too deep for me, David said. Only God has these, you know, he's, he's the eternal God and only he has these incommunicable attributes as God. But what he communicates to us as his image bearers that differentiates us from other species. Some say, oh yeah, we got thumbs. Does God have thumbs? No, that's not what I'm talking about, you know? What he has that, 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 what we have that others don't have is we have that love and that peace and that joy, that long-suffering, that gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, right? The fruit of the Holy Spirit that comes from the Holy Spirit is also God. And we also receive that in our lives. Amen? Amen? So it's beautiful that we are becoming more and more like the Lord. Amen? And that we'll reign with him, it says. So I love this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that we would be, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is like the prototype. We become like Jesus in our bodies. We transformed in his glorious resurrected body my, uh, with the exception of deity. We will never become God. And I'm glad. I'm not God. Why would I ever want to think that I could become God? That's just a ridiculous thought that people have. And that's what Satan, well, I'll be like the most high. And Eve, you could be as God. And Antichrist will send the God, tell God, show him something. He is God. It's all lies throughout the scripture that we see that the enemy pushes. And now that lies in the church. 
It's setting up for the Antichrist. But notice that the, 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 there's some heavy theology here, and I only have a few minutes to talk about it because I won't get through all the verses. But in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. By the way, just this is not, this is not that hard to understand. Election is corporate. We talked about that. Christ is the elect one, amen? Whoever comes to Christ will be among the elect. Predestination, it's right here, is according to what? What comes before being predestined? Those whom he what? Prognosis in the Greek. Prognosis. Pro before, gnosis, knowledge before knowledge. Knowledge beforehand. Those that God has knowledge of beforehand, he predestines to be conformed to the image of his son. So foreknowledge, God has foreknowledge of certain people beforehand and he predestines them, right, to be conformed to the image of his son. Now here's a question. Oh, by the way, give you a cross-reference to that is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. At the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, it speaks of to those who are the elect, the chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, sometimes we like to just make things just super bizarre and, and saddle God with things that aren't in the scripture and say, oh, God, oh God just foreloves certain people. He only wants them to be saved. And he wants to damn the rest. And that's when I want to wear a plan. Yeah, if you're one of the few that he's happened to love, which most likely you're not, if it's few versus many, because few go through the straight gate or the narrow gate, and many go through the broad gate. So most people would be predetermined damnation. That's not what he's talking about here. Because the foreknowledge, now this is key, we share the gospel with people. Not everybody accepts Christ. Not everybody loves Christ. Not everybody loves God. We know that. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Don't miss the conjunction. We talked about that already relative to what his goal is in our lives. What's he working for the good for? So we become like Christ, amen? But for, for whom he foreknew, for whom he foreknew, connects to verse 28. God works all things together for the good for those who love him and the call the court as purpose for whom he foreknew. The ones he foreknows are those who will love him. The ones who will turn to him and respond to him. The ones who put faith in him and walk by faith. Galatians chapter five, verse six says that faith works through love. And we turn to Christ and we realize we love him because he first loved us and we embrace him and receive the, the gospel, of Lord Jesus Christ. We put our trust in him, amen. He saves us. But guess when he knew that you would put your trust in him and respond to the gospel? Before the world was. For whom he foreknew, God works all things together for the good for those who love him. The call the corner is purpose. For whom he foreknew, that is those who would love him, right? He predestined me conform to the image of his son. God knew that you'd receive the gospel. God knew that you would love God, that you would love him. And therefore he said, you know what? This person, we're all given choice. The Bible says, choose this day whom you will serve, amen? Again, Jesus said, I'm saying these things that you may be saved. That's my goal. But you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Because he has two aspects of his will there. His first will is come to be saved, amen? But the consequent aspect of his will is that if you reject the provision he's made for you, well then, he's just, so you're going to have to be, accept your just desserts and pay for your sins. If you don't re receive what he did on the cross for you for your sins, you say, no, 
Well, then you're going to have, God's a just God. You're going to have to pay for your sins. But that's going to be owing to your own decision. So he knows who's going to love him. In fact, listen to this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 8, 3, very short verse. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Isn't that cool? Do you love God? Do you love the Lord? Guess what? You're known by him. Amen? Isn't that cool? And those he foreknew, he, who are the ones that love him and call according to his purpose, he predestines. He conformed the image of his son. Now he knows what's in the heart. If people say, oh, I want to follow Jesus because he does these cool miracles, man, but they don't love him, they're not committed to him. Well, listen to what it says in John 2, 23 and 24. While Jesus, or while he, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew them all. He knew what was in their hearts. And many of them followed him because they wanted the loaves and they wanted to be fed and stuff like that, free food. So he looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. It's pretty heavy. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.12 says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. The Lord knew that Paul would respond. In fact, Paul said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision on the road to Damascus. He had a choice to be obedient or disobedient. He wasn't disobedient. He said that God strengthened him. He chose him and put him into service because he knew, he knew something. He'd be faithful. When did he know he'd be faithful? Before creation. He knows all things before they take place. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 65, the Lord says, I stretch out my hands all day to gain sane people, right? I, all day long, I stretch out my hands and they don't listen. And he says, because they do not listen to my call. He's offering them salvation. All day long, I stretch my hands out to them. He says, because they did not listen to my voice, but chose wickedness, that was a choice, I will now destine them for the sword. That is powerful. Think about that. There's a lot of theology right there. All day long, some of the Jews, I stretched out my hands to you, but you did not listen. And because you didn't listen, but you chose idolatry, wickedness instead, therefore I will destine you to the sword. People are destined based on the choices that they make. Are you with me today? Amen. Is this getting too complicated or no? It's, you're like, no, I can understand. This makes sense. In fact, this is why I have a lot of comfort on this whole thing about predestination. You know what the early church believed about predestination and foreknowledge and choice and all that? The very things I'm telling you. I love the fact that the early church fathers taught that God knows who would trust him and who would not trust him and predestines them on that basis. In fact, Justin Martyr, he's considered the greatest of the early church apologists in the second century, right around 160. I think, I love Irenaeus. I put Irenaeus right up there with Justin Martyr, man. These guys both combated false teachings. Irenaeus came against the Gnostics and so forth. Er, Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo the Jew, sometimes we pronounce his name Trifo or Trifo the Jew, commenting on Isaiah chapter 33 verses 13, uh, 13 through 19, he says this, and this prophecy proves that we shall behold this very king with glory. And the very terms of the prophecy declared loudly that the people foreknown, the people foreknown to believe, that God knows will believe, in him were foreknown to pursue diligently the fear of the Lord. God knows who's going to believe and who's not going to believe. He doesn't just arbitrarily, one, two, three, four, you're not getting in the door. Five, six, you are in a fix. You know, seven, you're getting to heaven. Eight, nine, 10, 11, you're in heaven too. It's not like this arbitrary thing where God just like, I want to damn a lot of people, just show how powerful I am. 
That's not the God of the Bible. God is love, amen? Verse 30. Wow, look at the clock. 12 minutes left. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Wow, isn't that beautiful? So I like what John Wesley says about this. He says, once more, as John Wesley was probably perhaps the great, one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived, second or third, so you got to put Jesus and Paul first, so you got to put him at least third, okay? Well, he said, once more, as all that are called were predestined, so also whom God has predestined, he foreknew. He knew he saw them as believers. He saw them as believers. And as such, predestined them to salvation according to his eternal decree. He that believes shall be saved. Thus, we see the whole process of the work of God from the end to the beginning, going like, which is kind of interesting. Whom, whom are, who are glorified, he says, none but those who are first sanctified. Who are sanctified, none but those who are first justified. Who are justified, none but those who were first predestinated. Who are predestinated, none but those whom God foreknew as believers. Thus, the purpose and word of God stand unshaken as the pillars of heaven. He that believeth shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. And thus, God is clear from the blood of all men, since whoever perishes, perishes by his own act and deed. They will not come, to unto, me, come unto me, Jesus, the Savior of man says, and there is no salvation in any other. They will not believe, and there is no other uh, either to present or eternal salvation. Therefore, their blood is on their own head, and God is still justified in his saying that he willeth all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, so he's showing uh, this process of salvation. He's not talking about the condition of salvation at this point in Romans 8. He's really clearly made the condition faith. And many are called, so not everybody called ends up being sanctified, right? Many are called, Jesus said, but few are what? Chosen, Amen. And not everybody who's sanctified, the Bible warns about being sanctified. And after you're sanctified, it warns about, in 1 Corinthians 6, about how you can go to a prostitute in 1 Corinthians 6 a little bit later and join yourself to a prostitute, even though you're in the, the temple of God. And don't be deceived. Those who do this, he says, even though they had been sanctified, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And those who've been justified, which happens actually before sanctification, Hebrews chapter 10 says, the just shall live by faith. But if he draws back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Amen. And right here in Romans 8, it says, if we suffer it with him, we shall be glorified with him. It gives us a condition. But right here, he's just showing the process of salvation. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is what? Against us. I love that, man. So when you feel harassed by the enemy, I love these types of verses. If God's for us, who could be against us? Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Amen. We're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Amen. You know, all, you know, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Go on and on. Those are great verses when you're, when you're being hammered by the enemy. Amen. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, God didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Who will not, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Amen. Amen. So man, if he's going to send his son to partake of the wrath that we deserve in our place, how much more is he going to bless us by making us eternal heirs of all things. You realize that you are an heir of all things? That's mind-boggling. That's a reality. Sure as Jesus rose from the dead and fulfilled those prophecies. Sure as he's coming back, you know, 
you're, gonna, you're an heir of all things. We're joint heirs with Christ. Amen? Verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died for us. Amen? Is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes or prays for us. Amen? That, that trips, man. I can't believe Jesus prays. Well, he died for you on the cross. Took the wrath you deserved. I don't have a hard time believing he prays at the right hand of the Father for me because that's, that's who he is. Amen? How much, what, you know, we ought to be praying for each other then too. Amen? He's praying for us. But wow, who is the one who brings a charge against God's elect? We're the God's chosen one. He's the one who justifies us. Who is the one who condemns? You know, when you're going through trials and you're going through pain and you're, you know, and let's say you've fallen short of God's glory, you under, need to understand this. You need to repent and get right with God and, and ask for forgiveness, amen, and get right. But you know how to tell the difference between the Holy Spirit's voice and the devil's voice? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The devil's the accuser of the brethren, and he condemns us. Amen? There's no hope. He might as well just give up. And when you're hearing that voice, that's all over. God doesn't want you. You're hopeless. You know? Like Job's wife said, curse God and die. That's the voice of the enemy. Because the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will convict the world of sin. Amen? He convicts us and gives us hope. Repent, be cleansed, be right. Amen? And he continues to knock on our hearts. And the scriptures say, don't harden your heart so you don't hear the voice of the Lord. In other words, his voice continues to draw us. Jesus stands at the door and knocks, amen? But even, now, I love this because if someone tunes him out, tunes him out where they can't hear his voice, you know what it tells me? The voice was still there. Amen? amen. And they tune him out. And it's not like the Lord just said, I'm done. I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, you know what? I just, I just realized you're pretty pathetic. No. He knew exactly how he to be when he died for you. Amen? Amen? He loves you. You don't shock him. You grieve his spirit. We all do at times. We need to repent and get right. So when you have a condemning voice that, oh, it's over for you. Man, you blew it one too many times. And you're condemned and there's no hope. That's how the enemy works. Amen? The Holy Spirit convicts us, convicts us. Now, you can go too many times. Am I contradicting myself? No. You can harden your heart so much to where you tune out the Holy Spirit and you don't want to hear anymore. The Bible says, don't harden your heart to where you no longer hear the voice of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, verses 12 and following. So, but guess what? That's your own choice. Where you just say, I don't want you, Lord. It's not him just saying, you know what? Because, man, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from some unrighteousness, most unrighteousness, someone say, all unrighteousness, amen. He is good, amen. And what an awesome God we are. And we know he's at the right hand of the Father praying for us, interceding for us. I love 1 John 2, too. Even though Satan is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12, accuse him day and night before God's throne. He's, man, I got the goods on him. I got the goods on her. Bam, they did this and they did that and... And Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And I shared this in the Philippines when I was preaching in a prison. And the prison was packed because I got my Filipino sister over there. What's the name of that guy that was just taking people in and they didn't even go to trial and they just put him in prison? That last leader? I think he just got voted out. What's that? Duterte. Duterte. Okay. Yeah, Duterte. I was there just after he got elected and they were just pulling people off the streets. You just say, that guy's a drug dealer. Didn't even have to be and they'd arrest him. 
when that took so long for trials and everything. A lot of people loved him because guess what? Philippines was being destroyed with drugs and all young people. So people were like, he's resting everybody. But man, you're seeing all these people. A lot of them were probably innocent, right? But I was able to let them know, you know what? You're going to stand before trial. It may not be, maybe some years away even, you know? And I don't know what the verdict's going to be, but guess what? And I gave a salvation call. I think they're all dressed in orange. There's a ton of guys. And, and it just, a lot of those guys were new to the prison and we were there ministering. And, and I mentioned that, guess what? Satan is uh, accused of the brethren. He's the prosecuting attorney before God's throne. And he's got the goods on all of us. But Jesus, the good thing is the judge doesn't like the prosecuting attorney. Amen. He's kind of his enemy. Like, and not kind of, he is. And he loves the defense attorney because that's his son. But the cool thing is it's that the son is able to show forth his wounds that I paid for his crimes already. Amen. Amen. And plead for our defense. And the Bible says, who is the one who condemns? Who, look around, who, who can condemn you? The devil can't even condemn you now. If you're putting faith in Christ, I love that. Remember those guys that brought that woman caught in adultery to Jesus? And he starts writing on the ground, perhaps their sins. And one by one, they leave from the oldest to the youngest. They just all take off. And he looks around, he goes, woman, you know, who is the one who condemns you? Amen. Well, you can look around and say, who is the one that has the power to condemn you? If you're putting your trust in Jesus, right, because of what he did for you on the cross, you cannot be condemned. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Wow. All those things are powerful. But guess what? Corey Tim Boom said to her dad, she wrote uh, the book of Hiding Places about her hiding Jews and then put in a concentration camp. She lost her sister Anne, her parents and stuff in the Holocaust because they were hiding Jews. And she got out and she became a powerful testimony for the love of Jesus. But she also realized the church wasn't ready to go through tribulations and trials. So she said, she talked about how she went to her dad and said, dad, when she was young, would I go through the tribulation if that happens in my lifetime, you know? How am I going to endure? And he said, Corey, when do I give you money for the train? Long before? Or she goes, the day before, Dad. He goes, God will give you the grace to persevere through anything. And he does, amen? amen. We just have to seek him. And his grace is sufficient for us. Verse 36. Just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Amen? No matter what trial you go through, you can conquer through Christ. Amen? Looking to Jesus, withdrawing upon his strength, putting faith in his promises. Verse 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a great promise. What a great promise. Neither height nor death, principality, power, life or death. You're facing death. And that, I memorized this, man, when I was supposed to die of COVID. You know, you, you, you won't make it if you get COVID, Joe, because your heart situation I was going through at that time. And you know what? I memorized this verse. Even at neither height, neither life nor death, even death, praise you, Father, can't separate me from your love. What a comforting verse when you're going through a trial like that, you know. And I also memorized Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail me. And I love this, but God is the strength of my heart. And he is my portion forever, amen? Your heart may fail you, Joe. 
But man, he's the rock, as one translation says, of my heart. He's the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. Put your trust in Jesus. Any of these outside forces that are allied against you cannot prosper. No weapon that's formed against you can prosper. Be in Christ. If you are the key, guys, the key, guys, the key is being in Christ Jesus. Now recognize, as Grant Osborne says, he's a great commentator. He just died two years ago. So he's one of my favorite commentators. He says, this passage does not relate to perseverance, but simply speaks of the believer's encouragement in the faith. Paul here states his confidence in God's part, but elsewhere notes our own responsibility and danger. He's talking about how we need to continue in the faith, right? Outside pressures can't separate us from God's love, but inward apostasy can. It is God's love rather than his divine decree, which is discussed here. And so uh, he uses the reference in 1 Corinthians 9.27 that there's also our responsibility but I would rather, I love, his, I love what he says here, but the reference I would use because it's right in Romans just a little bit later is Romans chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, where Paul says, don't boast against the branches who are broken off because you stand by faith. Don't be high-minded, but fear for if the unnatural or the natural branches are broken off, how much more shall you be cut off? Then he says, therefore, continue in the faith. Otherwise, you too could be cut off. So our responsibility is, is trusting, amen, being in the faith. And that's being in Christ. Amen. That's why the promise here is not, the promise here isn't to apply to everybody. It applies to those who are in Christ. And in John chapter 15, 1 through 6, Jesus said we're to abide in him as branches abide in the vine. How do we abide? Through doing enough good works? No. Through faith in Christ. Just put your trust in Jesus. When you come to a non-believer and you witness to them, you tell them they could be saved and have eternal life. You don't just say, okay. No, you tell them they have to what? Put their trust in Jesus. Amen. That's the condition we have to meet to enjoy this great salvation. And praise God, he does all the work. We simply just trust him and receive the salvation. And then the faith that saves will have evidence of good fruit in it. Amen. Faith that works is dead. But those works are just evidence. They're not what saves us. It's his grace. It's what Christ Jesus did on the cross. His death, his burial and burial resurrection that saves us. Amen. Praise God. Father God, we thank you so much.